right, welcome to Subject Matter Tabletop. I am Jordan Tynes. And I'm Steve Gosler. Welcome to the third edition of Designer Deep Dive, mm -hmm. where we talk with a designer, and in this case, a whole studio. We have a special edition of this. Mm -hmm. We're getting uh, both all sides, perhaps, of the game design process from start to finish, which includes production and distribution and all mm -hmm. those other good things. So hopefully we'll hear about some of those things along the way. Um, we are joined today by, again, folks who may not need a massive introduction yes. because they are fairly well known uh, yes, we're at this point. Very excited, uh, to very excited most of our to, listeners. Be, uh, to be joined by the Brothers Worley, Cole, Andrew Worley, the founders of Worley Gig Games. They are the publishers of such wonderfully subject mattery titles as Pax Premier, Second Edition, and John Company, Second Edition, both of which I can attest are beautifully crafted and that really do strive to treat their subjects and their players seriously, as per the mission statement for the company. So in that sense, regular listeners to the show will see right away why we are so delighted to be speaking with them here on Subject Matter Tabletop today. Um, and of course, listeners will likely also be familiar with Cole's uh, work as a designer at Leader Games, where he's produced the wonderful Root series, Oath, and the forthcoming Arcs. Uh, so gentlemen, welcome to Subject Matter Tabletop. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you for having us. It's a treat. And uh, Cole and I getting the opportunity to talk about Worley Geek Games uh, can go into a lot of different directions. So I think we're both excited to talk. I can attest to when I got my copy of John Company, feeling like the answer, the, the, the universe answered my desire to have a game that does <laughs> so much of what I want. We, in fact, uh, I think uh, one of the primary reasons why this show exists today yeah. is uh, in, in part, I don't want to give you too much credit, but I want to give you a lot of credit for inspiring us to to uh, create a podcast that explores subject matter that is taken seriously by board games. Yeah, I, I would just sort of echo that. I think, you know, especially when Pax Premier came out and the studio was sort of started, I remember just being really excited about the approach to game design um, that we saw there. And the, it was just a real sort of like... Uh, yeah, real inspiration to the sort of energies we were already exploring in our own lives and in this podcast project, trying to think about subject matter and game design and the relationship between these things and what games are capable of doing. Um, so, yeah, that's our that's our well, little. That's very that's very kind of up you front. Say, you know, I often tell Drew that um, you know I've been lucky to work on lots of different games, but the one game I'm most happiest that I worked on is John Company. It's the game that, like, if I could mm. have stumbled into it at a game store, I don't know if I would have started designing. Um, because it is exactly the kind of thing yeah. I wanted to exist. I mean, Cole, we even like our first talks about starting the company were about f doing John yeah. Company. Um, and it was just the most wild project to start with. Mm. So we grounded ourselves yep. with a mm. with a project that was more built for development. Um, and I'm really glad we got to um, share both of these games so far. And it means a lot to hear such nice words. Great. So is that something that you, did you start with John Company as, as the first project at, at Whirly Gig or, I mean, cause it yeah. becomes second well, in the order of well, things you John Company you is sort of the first game I ever started working on. Uh, I mean, it, it, it mm. the, the origins of it go way back uh, to when I was finishing my undergrad and just kind of thinking about, uh, about games and design and some kind of, I mean, really I was interested in a thing happened to me around 2009 where I, I ran into the game, the old game, the Republic of Rome or Republic of Rome. I don't think it has an article, mm -hmm. uh, which is a great uh, bracing late Avalon Hill game from, I think the early nineties. And I loved it and thought, why aren't there more games about institutional history? Because history is, mm -hmm. is mostly institutional or organizational. It's like very little of it is powered by individuals. And in games, it's all powered by individuals. Um, and so I, I started thinking about it right away and then, you know, drop the project, would pick it up, drop it again. But in a way, like all of my early designs were just outgrowths from an attempt to do an institutional history game. And then when we started Whirligig, um, Drew and I talked right away uh, about doing John Company. And very quickly, we realized that a second edition of John Company would be way beyond our capacity. And we had to start with something a little smaller. Yeah, so could you maybe fill in a little bit? I'd love to hear a little bit more about the details of like the backstory of Worthy Gig Games. Like, what's the story of Worthy Gig Games? How did how did this come about in both of your lives? When did you decide to do this? And it has a clear mission statement, you know, in terms of what it tries to accomplish with its games. And it has a, I think, 
a unique kind of profile in the industry in terms of its like Creative Commons licensing and other things that you all are, are doing. Could you say just a, maybe in, in a brief sort of arc, like what's the story of Whirly Gig and where did this come from? Well, I had a trio of historical games that had been published by Sierra Madre Games and published on very generous terms. So the way that those contracts were negotiated with uh, the owner, Phil Eklund, is that basically uh, he owned the rights to the games just per printing. So he purchased kind of the first printing's rights for Premiere. And then as soon as that printing mm-hmm. was sold, the rights came back to me. And mm-hmm. at the at John Company, the, the first issue of John Company was in fulfillment when I was making my move to Minnesota to start working at Leader Games. And the fulfillment was mm-hmm. very bumpy. Um, there was a problem um, with, uh, with with a kind of now infamous shipping partner named Ship Naked that had resulted in a lot of like badly delivered packages and a bunch of things got missed. And basically the game that was supposed to come out at Essen that was on time was sort of like delivered three or four months late and mm-hmm. often to the wrong people. And so after oh, that, geez. after all that, yeah. you know. Yeah, you had, you had yeah, one yeah, job. Yeah. You Ship had one Naked job. did not do its job. Um, and I, I don't even know if they're still in business. I suspect not. Um, but after all of that happened, uh, I had these three historical games, was very busy with, with Root. And then as Root was winding down that winter, so this is really, John Company uh, went through its shipping fiasco, had a pretty good reception initially. Um, and all those history games came, came back to me. And having seen the work that it took to run a Kickstarter and deliver, it seemed like something that potentially could be done by a much smaller Mm. group than the staff that we had at at Leader. And so around that time is when I started talking to you, Drew, about it. Right. And so our first conversations about what Whirly Gig would be was all around, what if we managed all of this, just just the two of us, because you've already seen the first... um, the you've already seen the back end of development do, going through pre-production and seeing the game go through fulfillment and the bar was set i guess a bit lower so it made me feel like this was somewhat achievable as a newcomer sure. outside of the world of logistics and cole and i both continued to work on this in our nights and weekends for over uh over a year leading up to our first kickstarter campaign before we had any idea if this project for launching Pax Premier had legs, I remember our first conversations were talking about, even if this is just for us or just so that we know if people are interested in this thing, let's just make sure that we're comfortable with building about, you know, maybe a couple hundred boxes in our garage, because that's what this might be. I mean, at that time, um, and that was like our manifesto. Yeah, I, mean, I, like, I, that's I okay. remember like <laughs> measuring my garage and just and starting to think about like how <laughs> if we had to cast the resin pieces like at home, how difficult would it be to like oh, wow. get a silicon yeah. mold and, and figure out how to do that? And so we even did like some some tests <laughs> that did not work very well. But, well, you know, our basic idea was we, we, we loved the, the games that we, we, I'd worked on and really Drew had worked on the earliest version of the game. I mean, when I sold Pax Premier uh, during the kind of second half of graduate school, Drew, you were living with us. Like, I remember at breakfast the next day telling mm-hmm. you that, like, I had gotten an email from Phil and I just sold a game. Uh, and so he had, I mean, you had, you had played uh, some of the earliest versions of these games and you were, uh, you had a job at the time that had a little bit of flexibility for scheduling so that we were able to kind of like slow, slowly put effort in this. But the basic, the basic vision of the company right at the beginning was history games are are funny in, in, in the industry broadly, because what ends up happening is you have uh, certain publishers, often wargaming publishers, treat their subjects extremely seriously. I mean, I do a lot of background work on my games, but I feel like it pales in comparison to this sort of work that like Voco puts out. I mean, I'm still like reading through the 60-page source book for Amaravid. Um, and I mean, it's really re- re- remarkable. And we don't have that kind of like editorial infrastructure. Um, but on the other hand, outside of the conflict simulation folks, history gets treated very lightly very slapdash and it just seemed like there was a, a room for even a very small studio I mean, even just drew and i working together to make some kind of intervention and if that intervention was a second edition limited release made at home 500 copies that was enough of an intervention for us because really we just wanted to do right by the game and whatever little audience we, we, we could get out and this time too you know root hadn't come out we had no idea 
And, and mm-hmm. so right. when we started planning the campaign, I, we wanted to time it so that we would do it before Root came out uh, properly because we, we wanted to see how it could do by itself. What is it about this subject matter, this you know historical subject matter that brought the two of you together? It seems like that the the vision for the game is important to both of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, the you know from start to finish, you all are taking care of this as like it's like your uh, your child. You're talking about going into your garage and pouring resin pieces for God's sake. I mean that's like <laughs> that's like a, <laughs> a commitment, you know. Um, and uh, so, what is it that you? Why do you care about this so much? And uh, what is your sort of if you don't have that editorial capacity, what is your collaborative capacity like to make sure that the, that this subject matter gets represented in the way it does? Drew and I have been making things for a long time. You know, when we yeah. were kids, we made little <laughs> videos and games of all kinds of descriptions and big campaign, or like mods for for uh, one of Uncle Craig's war games that he left over, or like oh. uh, rules augmentations to Warcry. Yeah, sure, we, right? yeah, we just cool. like building things and whenever um i love whenever drew would come visit me in austin or something i'd always be like working on a project and so we get to work on a project here so part of it is we, we like to make things now that doesn't really say why we chose to make this particular thing um in hmm. that i mean i think so the, i always think about the, these historical games and i think this is probably something that we will be revisiting throughout but i always think about a historical game products as having kind of like two tumblers there are these two th- like freewheeling tumblers that when that you can get them to line up that's what when the product emerges and for me it's always um there, there's a, a tumbler that's all about a mechanical intervention and there's one that has to do with the thematic intervention something about the setting and you never really know when they're going to line up but i mean I'll, I'll i'll take it way back to the origins of premiere and to say that i was thinking a lot about tableau builders and this peculiar thing about Tableau Builders, which is that oftentimes they get less interactive the f- farther you get into a game. And my favorite example is Race for the Galaxy, which is also like an uncharitable example because I think it actually does this pretty well. But in Race at the very beginning, you need to be really sensitive to what the roles the other players are picking. But as you build a Tableau uh, and you get stronger, you care, start caring less about the shared decision space because your training wheels are off and you can kind of like, you can take care of your own. And I thought, well, I wonder if there's a way to invert that where it, throughout the game, players get more tangled up instead of less tangled up, even as they're building like a tableau of cards. And so that idea was just kind of like sitting, just kind of like sitting and festering mm. in the back of my mind. Um, and I, I was working on lots of different games Um at that time, I helped with the development of um, of Greenland, and um, I, I, you know, was playing a lot of Pax Perfuriana. And in that process uh, of of actually working on ver- a very early draft of Pax Renaissance, um, I had a, a side chat with Phil where he asked me, you know, he was talking to me about my doctoral research, and I mentioned I was doing stuff on Central Asia and thinking about some some different some different like, I mean, really just a narrative problems. I mean, I'm primarily a literary studies person. Um, and he was like, oh, you know, that seems like a really excellent thought for uh, idea, a theme for a game. You should, you, you should do a game on Central Asia in the 19th century. And he was, he talked to me about how much he loved uh, this book, The Great Game by Peter Hopkirk, which I had read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's good. It's, mm-hmm. it's fun. It's very fun. I mean, it's as fun as any Ian Fleming right. novel. Um, but I was really... I was really worried about Yikes. it <laughs> because it there's a way of there's a way that it gets the story quite wrong. And as I was reading this book, I was thinking, okay, I know that this is a pretty bad narrative, and I don't want to necessarily use a game to um, underline, fortify a, na- a narrative that I know is pretty busted up, and so. With that in mind, I just sort of like stopped. I like got to a, I got to a little wall, and I just kind of sat and, and thought about like, okay, is there a way to tell the story without centering like a bunch of kind of adventurers? Um, and then it was like about a year later that I, I I saw a talk and someone like as a footnote in their talk referenced uh, Christine Noel's State and Tribe, uh, and I went and read it and. Um, 
it just totally shook me. It like it, it it actually as soon as I saw that I was like in reading about the political entanglement and how difficult it was for a modern state to emerge in Afghanistan, I thought, oh, that's actually the same kind of mechanical problem as the other thing I was interested in. And as soon as those things tied up, I like went home and started typing yeah. away. The two tumblers yeah. had aligned. And, and, I mean, it had an offset of like yeah. almost that, two years. So it, it, it's hard to, I think that the, like mm, right. the, the, the first suggestion of that idea was like in 2012. And then I didn't really start working on Premiere properly until the end of 2013. Um, both of the games you produced so far um, are games about empire, right? And specifically about the British empire during this sort of, I don't know if you might call it the, the sort of long 19th century, right? 18th and 19th century. Um, so I was curious to know just sort of why that focus thematically, and you sort of alluded to the answer to that question already thinking about like your situation mm -hmm. within graduate school and studying empire and things like this. But I'm also curious to what extent that thematic focus necessarily positions your games as political mm -hmm. statements. And so let me characterize that a bit more fully. Um, so I would not say that your games are necessarily invested in making like radical gestures per se. Um, but as a core part of what players experience when they when they play them, right? I do think they are making historical arguments mm -hmm. for players to consider, uh, and that those arguments, once considered, have decidedly political implications for the way that players might think about the world and their place in it. So, is that something that you are all very self conscious and intentional about? Is it just a necessary aspect of making any historical game? And so you've just kind of decided to like be more mindful of it and sort of have it out in the open, right? Because you can't make history games without dealing with these questions. I'm curious to hear what, how that figures into sort of like the philosophy behind everything you do at Whirly Good. I think some of what's being asked is also our, our approach from the development and, uh, and Cole's uh, design philosophies about presenting complex systems and systems that have space that might take it in ahistorical directions, but that are still grounded in the political or social moment that produce conversations that are mm. that are representative of the of like the collective cultural consciousness that is happening on like on local or larger geopolitical levels and i think pax premier gets away with this in a few different ways but it's positioned itself not as a mission game or a, or a message driven game so that it can occupy a variety of different spaces right. and, a, and a variety of, of different um, a, people's relationship to the game. And I think the game can be approached in a few different, um, we haven't like pigeonholed uh, what the game is wanting to say and cast right. it in a larger, in a larger purview. Cole, do you feel like yeah, that Yeah, I mean, they're, they're not polemics, right? Like this is the, the thing I, I, yeah. I, I and I'm right. trying to be very sensitive to this because I think there's nothing wrong with what gets, what, what gets called a message game. Like, uh, like Romero's Train or uh, any number of yeah. other games like that. I mean, I would even put some of Amabel Holland's work in this, like the, the, this Guilty Land. I think it was very much like a message mm -hmm. game. Right. It has, mm -hmm. I mean, really it has one thing that it's trying to really impress upon you. And I never feel, and I think that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I also think when it, when it comes to my own work, that's something that I like consciously avoid. I quite love, although I guess it's a little bit like outmoded to say this. I quite love like, uh, the work of Bakhtin and the writings of like mm. on heteroglossia, like this idea that like in mm -hmm. the, one of the things that makes the novel so special as a form is that it is filled with voices, like voices, overlaying voices, overlaying voices. And so every work, mm -hmm. then every piece of cultural production, it can be about what it's about, but it also is about the circumstances of its own creation. So there are messages in John company that, I can't even capture because I'm too like trapped in, in, in the moment. Uh, Drew and I are reading all these mm -hmm. historical novels right now. And we were just talking about the other day, how um, what makes these books so remarkable is the moment when you realize that you're not really reading a book about like the 18th century, you're reading a book that is very much about the present of the writing of the book and the moment when the past becomes recognizable as part of the present. And I think mm -hmm. that is like one of the most powerful things that, uh, the practice of history can do is to like draw those lines at the same time you have to be careful because you don't want to get stuck in kind of presentism right where everything is getting seen through a particular lens and so right. i you know someone asked me once about john company if um if they could play it you know without 
you know, exploiting India or something like that. And I said, well, like you can bring whatever kind of subjectivity you want into the game. Um, but that just be conscious that you're bringing that kind of subjectivity into the game. Like, I don't want to like give people a morality mm-hmm. score or something like that. It, 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 yeah. Right. Go ahead. So uh, this timeliness of the, when the game is played and the type of discussion it solicits from the players. And um, you all do a fantastic job at foregrounding that with rule books that explain they're almost like content warnings in a way uh this is going to explore these these themes and we recommend that you be okay not only okay with that but maybe even have a discussion about that afterwards um there's mechanical abstractions going on in the gameplay uh that are also very timely right we have a particular relationship to them they are very creative i don't want to say that they're at times i feel like there's unique uh, combinations of mm. mechanic mechanics going on in your games, but they are very at least creative, and um, in that sense, they are fresh. They feel uh, it many times new, uh, and and I don't they don't carry a lot of like contextual baggage from games that I've played before that have, might share the same mechanics, and they're just being replicated in with a different them- thematic overlay. Um, but at the same time that will change over time, right? And so Mm -hmm. what is the responsibility of a game designer or a game design company um, to update that, right? Because the conversations will change around the subject matter, not only Mm -hmm. as time passes and our relationship to the subject matter itself changes, but um, also our relationship to the way that the subject matter is being communicated by the mechanics and the, the visuals and the components and all that kind of stuff. And so over time, it may not be this like sort of fresh contextual, uh, discussion, uh, but it will be like looking at a historical mm-hmm. object that we have to sort of have another layer of interpretation upon. Yeah, I mean that 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 is a, a thorny and intriguing question. Part of this has to do with the scope of the intervention that Drew and I are making, because I'm not. Um, so lately, I've been playing these games by a designer named Kevin Zucker uh, that are in this series called The Library of Napoleonic Battles, and it is a a truly wild project where basically this like kind of esteemed older designer is saying like, okay, I have a really good model for like battalion level Napoleonic warfare. And I'm going to like refine this model and then do every single battle that like all 70 or 80 of the major engagements of the Napoleonic wars. And when research comes out, we're like, Oh, like these towns, they weren't connected by a road. Like he'll correct it. This is like, and in fact, the entire process of the Library of Napoleonic Battles is in fact this work of scholarship um, that he is reflecting on the earlier part of his design career. And when you look at the old version of some of his games and then the updated ones, you're like, oh, the maps are a little different. He's like, yeah, because like we did some more research and we found out like this was a better way to like draw that hill or like put this little cusp of trees or something. Um and you find this attitude in wargaming a lot too, where like people will put updates. Or I, mean, I think about what Phil does with High Frontier, where if they find water on some little you know moonlit, he's going to want to update his High Frontier map. Um, that is not something that I think I could ever do, both because I w- it wouldn't allow me to work on new projects, but also because when when I look at these projects, I look at Premier and I say like, okay, you know, the year is twenty twenty or whatever year we managed to get it out, probably a little before that. This is mm-hmm. where my head was and where the scholarship was. And it, it, it's a work of that of that moment. I mean, I think a little bit about, um, uh, there's a really interesting book by, uh, so a lot of people know uh, Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities. It's like every other grad student's read it. Uh, it's a great book, but it has a really interesting introduction because he wrote this inter- introduction um, where he said like, hey, I needed to prepare a second edition of this book um, I actually don't agree with a lot of the things I wrote about, but I'm going to just let it stand because the book has value as an object of its moment. It's a little bit like Saeed's Orientalism in the same way, where it's like, Saeed, like Orientalism was published in 78, and the the later work of Saeed like, really fleshes it out and sometimes contradicts it and, um, and, and, and undermines some parts and strengthens others. And he didn't go back and like fix Orientalism. 
he like wrote another book and I'm like in that camp where I'm like, I will, Mm -hmm. I don't want John company is hopefully not the last design I do on, uh, the longer history of the British empire. I think probably there are several games I want to do on that subject. And I imagine by the end, I might come to positions that reverse some of my earlier, my earlier thoughts. Mm. But also some of it's coming from like a pedagogical standpoint where the act of experiencing this story is best being told by the players being in the company um, and being in their um, in the position inside the company, being at, at in London with their family members and experiencing mm. a highly abstracted India. Mm. Yeah. So a lot of this is like also thinking about what frame the story wants to take uh, or um, how the mechanics are integrated into that storytelling all the way back to the, the scale of the involvement of the players and the, and the perspective um, that you're approaching the game from. I can imagine the, the hard work <clears throat> 50 years from now that Steve and I are going to have to do in our <laughs> co-taught game design course where we, we put Pax Vermeer on the table and we say, so this is how we felt about tableau building back in 2020 <laughs> and we'll have to contextualize it before they can have that true sort of like historical analysis of the of this moment in time which i think is also kind well, of well and, and an it's worth i'm going to interrupt you, you steve know. for a second because i think it's it's worth it's worth noting that Pamir itself is a revision like pax Pamir's second edition is a different and refocused game than the first edition because having had that game come out having seen how people talked about it and worked through it and how it played I started to realize, like, okay, there are like some small problems in this model, and those were problems that were it create. It was creating problems both at the level uh, of strategy and game mechanism, and also at the level of thematics. And so, the second editions have been places where we've been able to refocus and reframe the games. And you know, maybe in thirty years, I'll want to make a third edition. I can't imagine doing that right now. Even now, right, if we're teaching Monopoly in one of those courses, Jordan, we're going to talk about like the landlord's game and, you know, progress and property right. and think about it yeah, in those terms absolutely. to situate it. You know, as Jordan mentioned mechanical abstraction earlier, this is one of the things that he and I often discuss on the show when we're reflecting upon these games after we've played them. We talk about the importance of finding that kind of like that one or those two is the case, maybe bits of mechanical abstraction that while, of course, not capturing entirely faithfully or reproducing exactly how a thing or institution or process operates in the real world, nevertheless do manage to kind of capture and communicate something almost essential in some mm-hmm. cases about our understanding of that thing or institution or process as it exists and confronts us in reality. So like I'm thinking here about the company as a kind mm-hmm. of agent of empire, right? And I've heard you speak about this in other outlets, you know, and the way that the systems in John Company construct for players, a way of inhabiting, manipulating, and disrupting that notion of an agent of empire, right? Um, is that something that you're sort of always thinking about when you're moving from theme to like finished design or prototype? Like how am I thinking, you know, what kinds of abstractions are most appropriate to capture or communicate something? Or is that sort of like a magic that happens after the fact and it's more just about like endless iteration or is it these tumblers you were mentioning before that could sometimes gestate over years? Well, the, I mean, it is something that happens very early on. I, I feel uh, I really want to give a talk someday that's just about like the lies of John Company and all of the places where there are just huge, huge, huge lies being told because they have to be told for the game to work. So the, one of the biggest ones is right. how the chairman works. So... The chairman in the management of the East India Company was not a weak position, but not a strong position either. Because really, what was happening is at Leadenhall Street and at the and the other, you know, both in the old and in the new companies, you have um, sort of dozens of like little committees that are making the budgetary and strategic t- decisions, and like they are being overseen by an executive board and, and a kind of chairman, but it's just a ton of like small small committees ma- making very tiny decisions about who's going to get appropriated funds and not and it just couldn't work within a game so the chairman itself in john company is a kind of abstraction which is why that position is hired so differently it's in, essentially it's the will of the court and the the the, mm. the court it isn't just piles of paper i mean it's a real governing body um, where kind of everybody on it might have had positions in different committees and, you know, there, there's some overlap and things like that. Um, so very early on, I'm like, okay, well, we need to abstract out. We need one player 
um, to act like the person who's in charge of the purse strings because you know one mm-hmm. one of the things that, that that you do especially when you're working on historical games is you're you're kind of like casting a play and so you, in order to get the characters mm-hmm. to like create the proper foils you need to sort of say like okay well you would normally be like a bureaucracy but you're just going to be a person because a person can have a conversation in a way a bureaucracy can't um and also i, I feel like and i think drew drew's very good about being sensitive about this too um, we have such limited bandwidth in terms of uh, cognitive load when we're working on a game. So you just have to really pick and choose where you're going to show more uh, uh, attention. Like, so one example of that is the, um, the behavior of the local alliances. At various points, those were tied more into the event system. They were like dynamic. They could, they could ebb and flow. And it, uh, we realized like, okay, we are putting a bunch of weight on a very thin part of the ice. And so we just have to like treat them like uh, like baubles you buy at a shop, because that captures mm. it well enough to create a budgetary mm-hmm. choice. One of the things that's created that is the primary that is what the families were thinking. Yeah, about, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, and I, which yeah. and I feel like so much of the abstraction is partly f- uh, thinking about the complexity budget. But it's also thinking about how it's serving the further iteration of strengthening arguments. So I think that mm-hmm. like so much of the work is done in the first draft. I want fe- players to feel this um, and going through creating this argument and these dynamics. And then the iterations are being informed by how can we strengthen – like if we revise or simplify or complex this, how is it pushing – and um, influencing other parts of the of the narrative experience. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, right. the so whether, finding those moments were you know, the, the yeah, essential yeah. question that we always ask at the very start of any design is, who are the players and what do they care about? And everything, everything has to go through that that like filter. Um, and so, whenever we get to any kind of problem in the design, it could be a mechanical problem or thematic, or, or it could be a production problem. I always find myself going back to like our master filter. And saying like, okay, who are the players and what do they care about? Because that is going to put everything into tension. And as long as we have a good, stable footing, uh, the whole thing will be coherent when it comes to like the kinds of narratives that it's producing. Yeah. So the, so the like the, the sort of like best case scenario then is sort of like this one you just you've pulled out as an example with the the baubles in a shop, where you're like alleviating a complexity budget problem at the same time that the decision you're making is also communicating something meaningful about the potentially, you know, morally bankrupt motives that lay behind empire yeah. building, right? In the 18th mm. and 19th century. You've made me think about this issue in a new way uh, in this conversation about this idea of, um, again, simplifying something that is so complex that inevitably you have to simplify it. Uh, how do you cope with this idea of like maybe trusting the player mm. to interpret it the right way. How do you, I mean, especially when it comes to a, a, a subject or subjects that are as complex as the games mm-hmm. that you explore. Uh, they're enormously complex games. If you really sit down and think about them and people can take them in different directions, especially cause you've had to simplify it quite a bit. Yeah. I mean, there's a, I had a play tester very late in the process of working on John company. You know, one of the interesting things about playtesters is you have people join in very late in the process. So we had someone who was like very fresh-eyed who who came in, and uh, they were really upset that the game wasn't um, wasn't being so obvious about its its kind of moral footing. And um, they asked a question that I thought was really lovely, and and I started thinking about it as actually a test, which is, um, you know, if Niall Ferguson who's an imperial apologist historian, historian in heavy air quotes, um, or Boris Johnson, um, if they were to sit down and play John Company, uh, would they get it? Or would they just play Mm. John Company the way Mm. a kid might play Risk? And and I... um, I thought about this for a long time. It really haunted me. I thought about this. this is the the Boris Johnson (laughs) question, right? Like, if I have... If I have a player who is... Uh, predisposed to another, you know, another another idea of what what the game could be, or um, or is a bad, or is trying to read things in bad faith. Um, will the mm-hmm. game course correct them? And what I've started, the way I've started thinking about this is like I I don't know actually. It's not. I don't think it's necessarily the responsibility 
of someone to work who's working on a game or any kind of media to fully capture the the ways that it can be interpreted because meaning itself i mean i always think about reader response theory like meaning meaning is negotiate <laughs> i was just going to say we need yeah, a exactly. well well but all, but, but then to, 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 to use to use the, the concept meaning is negotiated between the player and between the you know creator creators of, of a work um, and I think that's certainly true of games. And it's going to be negotiated in different ways in different kinds of circumstances. And mm-hmm. that, there's nothing scary about that, I don't think. It's it's initially scary mm-hmm. because I want everyone to sort of get the right things. I mean, my ideal, like I, I want someone to play John Company to have a great time and to feel a little queasy, but to feel compelled mm-hmm. enough to go read a book about it. And to, and, and to like further deepen the, their engagement with, 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 with the game. But there are, there are lots of ways of engaging with any of these texts. And I, I think that there are things that you can do to make sure that players um, have every advantage they can in understanding how to encounter a game. But this is a place where there's no peer position. You, you can only go so far. So I'll give, I'll give two small examples. One, um, John Company, you mentioned a content warning. Um, John Company has a kind of content warning at the very beginning of the rules that just says like, hey, this is like a game about something. It doesn't use its theme idly and know that's what, 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 what you're getting into. Um, and I think um, discomfort is a really uh, good teacher and so that, but I also want to make sure that people, you know, they, they don't, they don't set this up at a pub or something, right? Like I want them to kind of understand what they're getting into. Um, and the second example I'll give is uh, I was very careful with footnotes um, for, for lots of reasons. There's like a whole, I, that's, there's a whole, uh, a whole podcast about footnotes and games, but there is like mm-hmm. one footnote on one game component in John company, uh, only one. And uh, there's an image, one of the company failure cards. So when the company fails, you 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 flip a random card from six, and it it, it blames someone, and it's this little random like the you know your score is also partially at the beck and call of public, the public public's reception of the company, and so uh, you know it may be that people are going to get uh, blamed for something they didn't deserve, whatever. But one of those cards is uh, blaming Parliament. And it features an image of uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli presenting the crown of India to Victoria. And she's looking very haughty. And he's bowed mm. over and is uh, meant to be a character in an Aladdin par- uh, pantomime. Now, if you know anything about Benjamin Disraeli, you'd probably know that he was a Jewish prime minister. And that fact was held against him relentlessly. And this cartoon is... Anti-Semitic. I think it's anti-Semitic in, in a complex way, but it's still anti-Semitic. Um, and I, I, I wanted to include it, though, because and, and what we talked about. So I kind of put the image in. I thought about it. I was like, okay, this needs context. And so I, we talked about it on the playtesting Discord. And then I, I decided, okay, I'm going to put a footnote here. Because one of the things that's important about this image is it is an anti-imperialist image. It is staunchly anti-imperialist anti-imperialist but it's important for a modern audience to know that if they want to play as the anti-imperialists in the 19th century there a lot of the anti-imperialists were anti-semitic and that Hmm. if they're looking so often when players talk to me about like playing john company and like doing the right thing i'm like why are you like they're doing a weird kind of like backwards history where, where they're they're trying to turn uh a historical figure that they admire into someone that they would admire in their own time period. You see this all the time with like Abraham Lincoln, you know, people, people want Abraham Lincoln Mm. to be like the most tolerant and amazing, like figure of 2022. And like, it's not to take away from his greatness to say that like he was complicated and had many feelings that many Mm -hmm. people today would find objectionable because Mm -hmm. you can't help but be a creature of your own of your own time. And so I wanted, like I will, I use that footnote slightly heavy handedly to like wrap people on the wrist and say like, Hey, don't try to overread the the past. Don't erase the, the, the subjectivities of the the people that you're kind of playing here. I think also Mm -hmm. to double down, it's also why the games are so interactive. And that's a major point of, I think our design ethos is to like John company is negotiation game. 
as also a part of its learning tool. Um, like it as a thing to engage with a thorny subject. So it's going to be a table discussion as we work through all these things, because I think the game that's happening above the table is also a very Mm. useful space to get into understanding my motives and others in the game, but also in a historical context. And I feel like at um, Pamir does a similar space, though it might be more tactical. It enters a Mm. similar um, reflection decision space when you're talking about your actions and collaborating with others. You all mentioned that you're excitedly sure. working on some new stuff. Uh, is there anything you want to share about that or, or anything that you want to uh, give, give insight into about your, your current process? Um, yeah. So uh, first thing uh, we can say is that Cole and I have um, been lucky enough to build a, a community of, of players and of folks that want to engage in games like this. Um, but because of the amount of work that goes into designing these games, they're just long endeavors and Cole has his mm. hands overflowing with arcs. Um, we yeah. are taking it, uh, taking some like exciting new steps to experiment around uh, working on games by other designers. Um, and mm. we're going to be working on uh, a game by Joe Kelly, a game called Molly house. Uh, and and okay. working with Joe on the development and design of it to bring this game and to crowdfund it with them um, as Whirly Gig's exploration into uh, games not directly designed by Cole. So becoming a, a, yeah, a and, publisher. Uh, yeah, sl- <laughs> slightly more normal. Than another... uh, maybe, maybe just a publisher. <laughs> well, and, and, and yeah. we don't know how, how this is going to go. And so we, we, one thing that we told Joe is they said, look, uh, we want, everyone who backed one of our other games to back the, this project. Um, but, but we have no idea. And mm-hmm. so this is kind of a big experiment for everybody, but the, the design and the subject is so compelling. I started working with Joe a couple of years ago. I was so impressed with their design practices. Um, you know, there's a funny thing that you see uh, when you're doing development. Um, oftentimes, newer designers they iterate and as they iterate the design the iterations are either very small and the design is barely changing which is often a very bad sign especially early in a design because it means they're being much too precious with their own work or it's uh they're different every time and the game lacks focus and it it, the the designs aren't showing any kind of drive and what you want to see is uh, at least for me, I mean, I can only speak to my, my experience as a developer, is I want to see real radical changes, but that are in the orbit of some, like, hot sun, some, like, central experience that even though every design of, of, of their, their game is is sort of, like, shocking and different, I am still seeing the same story just rearranged and so you know as we were we were working together they would show me a version of their game and it would be completely different share almost no rules as the previous one but i could tell that it was the same kind of story being told and so you know and as as this goes ideally those changes start getting smaller and the design starts focusing but we we finally got, got to a place where i looked at their design and said well this is eminently publishable and i think you know it, it it's still going to take a few more, you know, a few more more turns around, around the, the star before it's ready, but it, it it's working, um, and it, it's all you you can see the trajectory, you can see the scope of the changes start to narrow. The, the design itself, Molly House, is about, um, I guess you'd call them drag houses, but there's really not a modern uh, equivalent. But the kind of like safe spaces for um, queer people living it's in like, London in the 1720s. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, um, this is a place outside of my area of expertise, which means I'm doing a lot of reading and a lot of having a lot of conversations with people who know much more about it than I do. But it is, you know, queer histories are so often um, sort of like, you know, buried or forgotten or lost or, you know, any number of more sinister things. And uh, this is one that like for the time period, we know kind of a lot about in comparison to other uh, other, other places, um, and so um, it's it's just sort of a remarkable a remarkable design, and I think it's what Drew and I are going to be spending you know the, the next many months working on. 
because it doesn't it doesn't fit into modern interpretations. It's it is like gender defying even in our sense. Oh, it, but also it's a game that celebrates joy and community building, and also that in the face of oppression and of uh, ratting out your friends to not uh, die. Well, uh, and it has it has like it's in the shadow of Empire. It's in the shadow of John Company mm. that this is happening. Well, and and, and, and it. And, and well, it's also, wonderful. I mean, one thing that really compels me about the project and about uh, Joe's approach is that uh, they've been very careful to avoid a kind of like a historical reframing. So like, you know, for instance, we, we've had a lot of conversations around like the use of the word queer or like, you know, do any of these folks, do they qualify as trans people? And it's like, you know, one thing that Joe has always been very good about checking me on is that they've said like, well, look, we have to be very careful about using 20th and 21st century terminology because these were not people who would describe themselves like that at all. And we don't want to necessarily like, you know, we don't want to bulldoze, even if it's, even if we have the best intentions, we don't want to bulldoze their particular personhood for, to to put them in league with with some particular block. If you don't mind, we'll just do the like rapid fire question round and then wrap things up. Uh, So this is, uh, this is our considerably less self-serious take on James Lipton's uh, questions (laughs) or whatever it was that he used to make actors. answer. (laughs) What was the last game you played? I know for me, I played John Perry's spots um, with uh, some relatives and it was a treat. (laughs) I played Sid Saxon's I'm the boss. <laughs> awesome. Nice. Uh okay, this one's a little harder, but uh what is your personal favorite, or maybe not hard, personal favorite game of all time? Personal favorite. Probably diplomacy. Mm, good yeah. good answer. Oh man. <laughs> it's gonna make mine feel <laughs> like <laughs> Drew, say spots. I know you want to say spots. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'll say I'll say um oh my gosh. Um this is your desert island. My, my game. Yeah, desert yeah, island right. game. I don't know. Right now, I don't know why roads and boats was what I wanted to say, but I'm going to stick to it because I'm feeling mm. like logistics. Yeah. Good. <laughs> All <laughs> right. <laughs> Sounds good. So this is slightly different. What do you think is the best game you have ever played? Uh, probably, I think eighteen seventeen. I think eighteen seventeen mm. is. Dang it, I'm Cole. sorry, Drew. You can you can say the same. I can say that too. Can we say why? Uh, yeah. Can I say why it's the best? It's sure. So yeah, of XX yeah. games, despite their reputation for mathematical rigor and you know calculators, um, you know they're designed by Fra- Francis Tresham. They're kind of goofy British games that have a lot of like weird chrome and like funny exceptions and like, Oh, you can only sell, you can only own 60%. You can only sell some part of this. And what's amazing about 1817 Mm. is that I feel like the whole engine of the 18 XX game was rebuilt from scratch, like almost like as a pure proof of itself or something. It's just shocking. Mm. I think 1817 is a shocking design. I love it. Love it to death. Uh, okay. Uh, you, do I, I, Drew? I do, unless you, unless you were about to just turn it into our time that we just played too much 1850. Oh, yeah. Well, and can, I, can I say one more thing about it? Um, I, uh, when I had to fly back to Texas to defend my dissertation, I stayed with Drew and our good friend Chaz in Chicago for a night to, you know, save on the flight, cheaper flight out of Chicago. And so I had this like weird day before I was going to have to go like defend my dissertation and and Chaz came up to me and said, what do you want to do today? We could do anything, keep it chill, like just, you know, you know, you're going to a stressful thing. And I said, I kind of just want to play 1817. And so the day before, we just <laughs> gathered around his silly little table and we played, <laughs> we played 1817. Uh, okay, this one really is like a rapid fire one. Co-op or competitive? Competitive. Yeah, competitive. Both. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Good. Uh, Done. There's no right answer, um, but you know sometimes people don't want to pick, so it's good that you just bought it. Sounds like a co- well, something like a co-op person. Would say. Um, no right. There's no right. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite board game day snack? Mm. I love peanut M and M's. I'll just say nuts. I think nut, I think you and I are both nut people. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay. Good. Um, what do you want to see more of? In games, in our games. I want to see more real-time games. 
Mm. Oh, me too. I think they're almost all mm. bad. Good question. Good <laughs> but, answer. But, but they don't have. They shouldn't have to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want to see. I want to see more games that uh, have very con- very concise upfront uh, essays, mission statements, like a, on on their games. Mm. Um, that isn't mm. flavor text written uh, uh, of the characters in the game. Right. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. defining your terms yeah. uh, before we get involved here mm-hmm. in this game i like that too uh what do you want to see less of in games dragons uh, <laughs> yeah like yeah <laughs> I, i've started maybe yeah, yeah. Uh, i've started working okay. on this this talk i'm going to give later about theme theming games and i it, it's been a fun talk to work on because i didn't really know what i was gonna like argue about when i got into it like i, I you know you know how it is you propose an abstract and you're like I think this is an argument. Yeah. And then when you when you're working on it you're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, like I had this impulse which I think is correct, but I didn't yet have the terms." And what I've started what I've started thinking about is this thing I'm calling the least objectionable theme. And it's like, what because a lot of people <laughs> when when they when they, you know, when we what one reason I have weird feelings about like the world of uh, cultural consultants and board games, and my 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 weird feelings about it stem from the fact that I feel like publishers are buying insurance policies. Um, Mm. and which is the absolute wrong way to treat that, you know, thematic integration at all. And so I feel like we have this idea of like the least objectionable theme and lately, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe 10 years ago, it was like colonization and now it's (laughs) like, it's kind of like a bland fantasy setting. Um, Mm -hmm. and those are both bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Those are both bad, bad integrations. Yeah, I want to see. I want to see less ruins uh, from a time gone by that no one knows anything about. <laughs> Drew, I see oath on your sh- shelf back there, and I want you to, you to just like lean it down. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about my shelf. It's definitely back there. Um, what is your dream? This is a kind of a weird one. What is your dream meeple shape? So, like, you can have a meeple in the shape of anything. Maybe uh, yeah, you go ahead, Drew. It. You first. When I saw the. Um, the the sharpshooters that are in Bernus um, Red Bernus uh, oh, yeah in the Red Bernus uh, I was like oh. oh incredible people so maybe that one it just came yeah. to it came to be that I held one <laughs> I want mm-hmm. like a better so I'll, I'll say first of all in credit to Kyle Farron uh, his meeples and oath are my favorite meeples that have ever happened um, I, I I love them so deeply especially the <laughs> blue amazing. one it's just like a swoosh um, no the one I want though is I want a good, tall ship, a good sailing ship meeple. There are so few good ones. And the ones that even get halfway good either have too much detail or too little. And what I want is like the perfect abstraction of like a fleet. Um, I think the one that gets closest to it is the Imperial fleet piece in the the game Imperial. Um, But I want something for an age of sail. Mm -hmm. That's just a a good sailing boat. If you could see any subject matter turned into a game, what subject matter would that be? And crucially, mm. you don't have to design it. I know for a long time we've talked about someone, maybe not us, likely not us, doing a game, a very thorough game on the reconstruction, US reconstruction. Yeah. Problem. That's like top right. of my top of my list. Mm. Right. I, I, I read like I think I read a dozen books on it. I really I have like two half concept drafts of how to do it. Um, mm-hmm. but it is such a big and hard project. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I, I've talked to designers occasionally where I'll say like, I was, I, I, I told to, to, to Voco, actually the first conversation I had with Voco was like, I think I want to make a reconstruction coin game. And we like had a nice little chat about it. Mm-hmm. And then lately I, 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 wow. I talked about it again, just because I think it's a really good format for it. But I think the subject is just so huge that I don't think you could do a single you almost couldn't even do a single game about it. It's like too, it's too big and tricky of a subject, but someone, someone should do it because I think, okay, so this is, I mean, right at the very start, I was talking about how like one of the joys of historical fiction is realizing that it's an object of of the present moment and that it's, it's telling you something about like, when did your own present moment, become recognizable as the present so that's why i mean it's like not wig historiography it's not just like backward and forward projecting it's about like looking at the past and saying like hey this is when the thing that you think is yours this is when it kind of maybe started and these are these are its characteristics and i think that reconstruction is 
the foundational like episode in the mo- modern American state in a way. And I, I mean, I really think that, and, and uh, you know, I'm going to get into fights with American historians about this, but I always think about the United States as having like essentially three foundings. You have like the constitutional mm-hmm. Congress and like the, the, the first 12 years of the Republic. And then you have the civil war and reconstruction is like the second founding. And then the third founding ends up kind of being the first world war in the degree to which the modern state apparatus appears. And it's really the first world war into the second year. I mean, none of these foundings happens instantly, right? Like, okay, the Congress is, right. you know, the constitution's ratified, but the, the state doesn't emerge. I mean, you need Marbury versus Madison. You need like the first 20 years of the Republic before it really starts. I think that that same generous vantage could be applied to the civil war and reconstruction and to the first world war into the second. And I feel like, you know, the, the average person on the street or somebody who even like knows a lot about history, they know a lot about the first and third foundings of the United States. And they know nothing about the second one. They know about, they might know about the battles, but they don't know about the whole second part of the story. Which is which is the more interesting mm-hmm, part? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. So let's have someone else design that. Yeah, game. I don't, I'm way too busy. There's no, there's no way. <laughs> and it'll be perfect. It'll be the ideal years. subject matter game on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You won't I'll be, I, I'll be the guest. Um, okay, <laughs> this one's maybe a little more, a little more good for you. This is one of my personal favorites. If you could see any game adapted into some other cultural form or communicative medium, so like a novel, a play, a film, etc., what would that be? So like. Some of my favorite examples are like a terraforming Mars fresco mm. or perhaps like Mysterium as a Wilkie Collins novel, <laughs> yeah. right? Or you might, you might make like, uh, you might have someone compose a symphony of Oath or something like oh, that. Oh, that's right? very good. I, I want an 18XX share portfolio Rothko <laughs> painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Mm. I love it. <laughs> but you know, you know, my, my first impulse was I want a blood on the clock tower escape room. But then I, but then I realized that blood, that, that I, I realized that every game of blood on the clock tower is a blood on the clock, clock tower escape room. And that it in fact is already, is already been, been made. I want like Titan as like a work of uh, landscaping, like a garden. Ooh. Oh my God. Yeah. Ooh. I'd be into that. Yeah. yeah. It sounds groovy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Love it traveling exhibition broadly speaking dice or cards you know if 10 years ago i would have said cards these days dice <laughs> i think i'm feeling dice these yeah. days <laughs> okay good all right cool. all right all right uh okay and this is the last one if you could give one piece of advice to an aspiring publisher or designer or developer uh it's not the only thing you'll ever say to them right and i'm sure you you two say things to aspiring designers and publishers all the time so What's just one, one, the, or one thing, not maybe not the one thing, but one thing that you would say or offer to them? I'll give the, um, I'll give the hard advice, which is it's really important to be unhappy with your own work. That like no one is going to care about what you make so much as you, and you're going to be tempted to just finish it and to move on to the next thing. But the act of making it is so much more important. I mean, I think a lot of the young designers I feel like I meet, they always fall into two categories very cleanly. It's like, are you interested in selling games? By which I mean getting a publisher to agree to it and then moving on to the next project. Or are you interested in making games? In which case the publishing is less important. But I you know, know that like you'll be in a room where a bunch of people are going to say, this is great, this is done. And if you're not happy with it, like you're the only one who can like stop it stop the train and get more time so like Mm -hmm. that inner skepticism is good it's brutal but it's like that's a good healthy thing it doesn't have anything to do with 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 with, with their self-worth as a person of course but it has a lot to do with their work's worth and that 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 healthy skepticism is something that only they can really can really apply to something they're working yeah without without a doubt also i feel like don't don't do it alone there's community. The community is so strong and creative, and there are cons at all different shapes and sizes where people want to play new games that are broken. And like the developer community, the designer community, uh, starting out is is thriving. Um, 
to like it's it, yeah it feels like you, you have to um don't don't be frustrated every there's a community of frustrated people and that that is where the the good work happens <laughs> thank you both so much for coming on the show yeah what a joy it's been a great uh t- time talking with you and hearing more about some of the the nuts and bolts behind what we care about which is how you all carefully craft a, a message with your games and, and share information about a particular subject. So thank you it very my, much. It was absolutely sharing. my pleasure. Thank you so much for having both of us on. Mm-hmm.